Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Government event, How Can Devolution Contribute to Regional Growth in England? I'm Tom Pope, I'm the Deputy Chief Economist here at the IFG, leading our work on regional economic policy. We're very grateful to Aviva for sponsoring uh, the event today and making this very timely discussion possible. Particularly glad to have Sophie um, on the panel to provide her expert view today. Both the current government and, La and the Labour Party have committed to further devolution within England, building on the metro mayors that in some places have now been in place for getting on for a decade. And both have argued that devolution is an important route to stronger economic growth in regions outside of London and the South East, and therefore to the nation's overall prosperity as well. And this was an underlying premise, both of the government's levelling up white paper and the Brown Commission, and of many of the things that we've heard politicians say since too. Um, however, a paper that we at the Institute for Government uh, wrote last year um, highlighted and warned that devolution shouldn't be seen as a silver bullet that automatically leads to higher growth in England. And indeed, internationally, the link between um, how devolved a country is and how much it grows and how that changes over time is pretty weak. Um, and we argued this shows how important it is to ensure that you're pursuing devolution in the right way, and if growth is your aim, to do that in a way that is conducive to growth. In that paper, based on a framework of the costs and benefits of devolution, we concluded that there are many economic levers, like control over local transport skills and, hand and housing, that are really good candidates for devolution to the right ge geographic scale, um, which we consider to be a coherent economic geography um, that met metro combined authorities broadly do cover. The reason why these policy areas make so much sense for devolution is they're places where um, a good local knowledge and understanding of a local economy and an ability to coordinate those different levers together into co a coherent economic plan um, and to provide a clear offer to the private sector um, are really beneficial. And those are some of the key drivers of what makes um, devolution potentially um, so um, supportive for growth. And this is broadly the direction of, of current policy. Certainly if you look at the trailblazer devolution deals in Greater Manchester and the West Midlands, um, but we argue that it could and should go further, both in terms of the breadth of places where this is on offer and also the depth of, of policy responsibility that areas have. Um, but we also argue that there are other economic responsibilities that actually do belong best at the national level. For example, basic R&D funding and tax setting. And that even in those areas where we think there's a case for further devolution, there's a really important role for central government to regulate and set standards and also to provide strategy to ensure that there's a coherent settlement across the country and there's better coordination between places. Um, but too often central government has not played this role well enough. And even where it has devolved, the patchwork of different devolution deals in different places with different responsibilities has made it harder for central government to play this role well. We also argued that the way authorities are funded is as important as the specific levers that they hold, and that the current fragmented system of funding with lots of short-term competitive pots undermines many of the potential benefits of devolution. It's very hard to coordinate different policies if you're having to bid individually for each one, and there's a tendency, therefore, to run policies separately um, and to try and tailor those to what central government wants you to do rather than work out what your true local priorities should be. Again, there's positive movements in the right directions with the single departmental style pots that have been announced for Greater Manchester and the West Midlands and in the new level four deals that more places should be able to access to. And finally, we cautioned that the government also needs to take the capacity of local and regional government seriously. 
many of the potential benefits of devolution come from the idea that you can make policy better locally, but that relies on having the right capability and skills to enable places to do that well. Um, so that's a, just a brief summary of some of the IFG's views of what good English devolution looks like if growth is your goal. Um, and this, in this event, we have a fantastic panel uh, to discuss these questions further. And with an election on the horizon and both parties looking to add more detail to their plans for further devolution soon, um, it's a good time to be discussing these issues. So on the panel today, we have um, on my left, Seb Payne, who's the director at Onward and formerly of the Financial Times, who's written widely on the topic of levelling up. We have Jim McMahon, MP, who's Labour's shadow minister um, for devolution and local government, who will set out where Labour's thinking is getting to on these topics. We have Oliver Coppard, who's the mayor of South Yorkshire, trying to use his devolved powers to improve outcomes in his region. And we have Sophie White, who's the sector head for regeneration at Aviva, our partner for this event, um, who will be able to reflect on how the private sector is looking at the progress made on English devolution in recent years and what, what really helps the, the private sector in this area. So just before we get started, some brief housekeeping. Um, this event is being live streamed and there'll be a recording available within 24 hours on our website. So if you miss some of it for whatever reason, don't worry, you can catch up there. Uh, we'll also be live tweeting from uh, the Twitter handle at IFG events using the hashtag IFG devolution. So please do join in the conversation there. And after some opening remarks and some questions and discussion among the panel, we'll have plenty of time for audience questions too. So for those online, you can submit via Slido, which should be just to the right of, of where you're watching the live stream. For those in the room, we'll have an opportunity to ask questions in person. Please wait for the mic to come to you and do be thinking of what those questions are now, even as we start uh, talking. And with that, I'll hand over to Seb. Devolution is one of the areas where this government has made the most progress in recent years. Um, do you think the approach taken so far is one that's likely to boost regional growth? And what are the missing pieces of that current settlement that would make devolution more pro-growth? Thank you for that nice small question uh, <laughs> to start off with. So I'm going to start by looking at what's gone well and where there is still working progress. And my kind of rule of thumb on mayor and devolution is to try and follow the principle of everything everywhere all at once. And that's happened in some cases, but not happened in others. So I think if we look um, since 2019, we've got many new mayorities who've come in. We've got elections in May for uh, North Yorkshire and York and elsewhere. But we've also had some misses there at the Cornwall devolution deal collapsed as well and I think this is important because the principle of mayors as you mentioned Thomas is about 10 years old a bit long if you go back to the mayor of London but the argument for I think is still not won amongst the country and among voters that this is something that is absolutely intrinsic and core to improving your growth prospects and your livelihoods that um, too many people I think still sometimes see mayors as yes another politician in my lives what are they actually doing and what service are they responsible for obviously not in Oliver's past, but in some other parts of the country they, they, might, they, might, they, might, they might say that. So I think if we look at where, where things are going well, there are more mayors, that's a good thing. The fact is there are still many more to come. There are still, we've had some local council reorganisation last year and there's still a case as well that there are more uh, unitary authorities that could be combined, more natural areas. Um, we have 
got more progress as well, as you mentioned, the Trailblazer deals of giving more powers and um, onward. It's obviously, I'm here to promote every opportunity. Did a great report, um, almost because the IFGs, called Give Back Control, about realising the powers of England's mayors. And I was looking back through this report we did in 2022 and saw that a lot of the um, recommendations have been adopted. But where I think there is still the much bigger progress to go is on fiscal devolution. And this is what I think is absolutely core to trying to get to the growth question here because where I struggle sometimes with the devolution of mayor debate is, uh, is that it's not just about shuffling pots of government money around and you create what Andy Street in the West Midlands called the begging bowl culture, where every year a levelling up fund comes around, you go to the department for levelling up, you ask for some money, you might get it, you might not, you keep doing that. And does that ultimately fundamentally change an area? Does it give them the long-term investment, the certainty? And it's also pitting areas against the relatively quite small numbers of cash. Now that cash can have a good impact, but that's not the way we should be doing this. And I think in our paper, what we argued for is that one P in every pound of the basic rate of income tax should be devolved. And you mentioned the trailblazer deals, this is something that's been looked at, but I do think when we look forward to where mayors go in the future, that's where the action really needs to be, as well as having more mayors. The other thing as well is collaboration between them. You know, there is the M10. Has anyone heard of the M10 organization? Okay, oh God, wow, three, um, that's very good going. I mean, to me, it sounds like a motorway. Um, and I think the problem with it is, is that those of us who believed in mayors and devolution saw us as a new political architecture that would sit in between Westminster and local councils to provide natural areas a stronger voice. And we've seen so many good examples of Labour and Conservatives of doing that. But then those mayors, of, I think, have really struggled to work together and find a unified voice. And if we go back to to uh, the slightly dark days of the COVID pandemic. For a lot of people, we picked this up in our focus groups. This was a time when mayors entered the consciousness, and we'll all remember Andy Burnham, uh, the self-proclaimed king of the north, you know, being on TV, um, battling with Boris Johnson's government for lockdown money, lockdown figures, but that was proof of a mayor doing exactly what he's there for, which is to be the number one champion for his area. But that was Andy Burnham operating on his own, not working with other mayorities. He did collaborate with Steve Rotherham in some areas on this. But I think there's still a big opportunity for the Mayor Association to find structures and way of working better together. Because as Oliver and others will know, many of the areas do share similar challenges in terms of infrastructure, which is something, again, it's a very big part of devolution about getting the combined authorities having their saying it. Where the fiscal powers do and don't work, you know, there's been a lot of debate about uh, business rates and whether you should have some form of devolution for that. I mean, that again is something I'd love for us to be exploring as a country. I think it creates some challenges as well because you will get some councils that will just lower it massively and then create even more constraints on spending, some that will raise it. And again, that will create higher taxes and people will be asking where that money's going to. But it's the ambition on the fiscal side that I think there needs to be more from the government and onwards we'll be arguing for ideas for the next manifesto. That's something I would love to see in there on the Conservative and the Labour side. Because I think what's been so interesting about the mayoral project is that it came, a lot of it from uh, the centre-right, you know, and it was um, another 
right-wing think tank policy exchange that really pushed uh, police and command commissioners, devolved mayors, and then it was when George Osborne and Michael Gove picked up that project really in the early noughties, the mayors gained traction against quite a lot of conservative opposition. You know, I think George Osborne has said that in the cabinet, he said, well, hang on a minute, aren't we just going to elect a load of Labour mayors that are going to cause problems? Uh, which in some cases might have been true, but in other <laughs> cases, you know, Ben Houchen is obviously the obvious counter to that in Tees Valley. Who would have thought when that mayoralty would have created, you would have had, you know, a person winning North Korean-style majorities for his mayoralty, as we saw at the last, um, the last mayoral elections. So I think the arguments were on the Conservative side, but the Labour side have really lent into this too. And I think the Brown report accepted this idea that mayors are a part now of our political architecture. But I think on both party sides, there needs to be much more kind of effort on how you're going to build that in, how it interfaces with Westminster. And this is going to bring me back to the other thing I'm here to plug, which is a fantastic book that I wrote in uh, <laughs> 2001 called Broken Heartlands, where I spent 6,000 miles going around the country about all those places that voted Conservative for the first time. And the, the lesson I got from them on mayoralties is, number one, no one really knows who runs anything in this country. Like your average punter really struggles to understand the network of parish, town, district, county, unity, county. I mean, I struggle and it's meant to be my job. And then, then you get into the Westminster question and Adding mayoralties onto that is something that's really tricky. They understand a mayor, from my experience, as a champion, as someone who has their values, who can speak up for their region, and the mayor of London is kind of the model for that in a way. But as someone who delivers growth, which is the question we're here to do, that one is more complicated because you've obviously got different political views on this. Some mayors favour more spending, some mayors favour more investments, some have views on planning and, and all the rest of it. So I think that argument still has to be won. And that's why I think when you look at the areas that have rejected mayors, this shows where the work has to be done there. The other thing I saw from Broken Heartlands as well is that ultimately, um, People's, when they look at their areas that need help, that want help, a lot of their needs are relatively quite straightforward. They want to live in a place that feels nicer. And um, I always get uh, people t taking the mick out of this, but on the, the thing that comes up most of the time again was hanging baskets. And this is on the front cover of the Broken Heartland's book. And hanging baskets are one of the prime drivers of people who have pride in place and pride in their community and it's the kind of thing people sniff at but if people have got places they want to live they feel have got good local investment that are safe as well that they will feel better in their lives and it used to be you know that private hedges were the symbol of conservative voters because people who sort of spent a lot of time trimming their hedges were apparently more likely to vote conservative but hanging baskets I think if you go down suburban street in many towns will show you a sense of how people feel within their community the last point I just want to finish on as well is on safety as well. So I mentioned this, that we talk about economic growth being important for mayors, but I think the foundation of that has to be tackling antisocial behaviour. And this is something that we have seen a rise of in recent years, and it's not one easy, straightforward thing. I don't think you can just blame it on police funding. It's a lot more complex um, nature of, of things that are challenging different places in different ways. We did a series of focus groups in six towns from Barry, Clacton, Warsaw, Odom, 
and South Tyneside, where we went and spent a lot of time examining the specific things they had in those areas. And ultimately, you know, if you've got someone coming along talking about a fancy digital startup where you get a free old flat white, it's not much good if you're scared to walk down your high street or your bus stop has got all of its windows bashed in. And I think that dichotomy is something we often overlook from a national perspective. When we talk about growth, we think about new, bold, exciting things. A lot of people just want to feel safe where they live. They want it to feel as if it's a place that is on the up, that's getting the right investment. And for me, the only people who can do those things are mayors. And that's why they're so crucial to where we go next. But there's clearly some more ambition needed. There's some more arguments to be won. And there's more policy thinking about how to make the fiscal devolution work. Great, thanks very much, Seb. A lot of threads there that I'm sure we'll want to come back to. <coughs> that question of fiscal devolution, really interesting one, one that we do touch on a bit in our reports. Um, that, that question of, of collaboration as well, a really interesting one. And, and that interface between, between Whitehall and, and mayors as well. And that, that's a bit of the theme of my question to you, Jim. We know that achieving high economic growth across the country is one of Keir Starmer's five missions. And the party's also committed to further devolution. But some of the other policies that are announced to promote growth um, will require central coordination and funding. You know, it's not all going to be a local project. So how would a Labour government look to ensure that national and local economic policy work together to deliver growth? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, I think we have to recognise that the foundation that we're going to be building on are pretty weakened. Uh, and although we kind of focus on mayoral models and combined authorities as uh, the infrastructure to build uh, kind of up from, in most local, in most areas, they're building blocks are local authorities. And if you look at the Greater Manchester devolution deal that was signed in 2014-15, uh, health and social care devolution, so the, you know, the biggest aspect in terms of uh, the number of people who come into uh, contact with that part of uh, devolution, but also the public sector pound and the spending that goes into it, um, that was actually devolved to the 10 local authorities who worked in collaboration alongside the mayor, of course, but that devolution was to the 10 local authorities. and. You know, of course, uh, mayors are important and they are very important to build from, but we shouldn't underestimate the importance of local authorities, the leadership of local authorities, the capacity within local authorities, and how important they are to build and to marshal a sense of place and belonging uh, to, to bring people with, um, with politicians on that journey, I guess. And within that, of course, any government has a right and a responsibility to set out its vision for what it wants to achieve for the country. Uh, it shouldn't matter where you live in England uh, as to whether you get care in older age, as to whether a child who is vulnerable gets protected, about whether somebody that's facing homelessness gets protected and is given a home that's safe uh, and secure and within the community where they have uh, support. That shouldn't matter wherever you are. You should know that the country that, where you live provides that as a base level of service. But the how it's done has to be tailored for the area uh, given the country is so diverse and so unique. You know, and if we take housing as an example, the housing crisis affects every community, but the way it features is different in every community. A coastal community has very different housing challenges than a town like Oldham. A city has very different challenges still. Rural communities have very different challenges on top of that too. And so the how you do it has got to be tailored for the local place. And that's where I think devolution does come into its own, which is for a government to achieve any of its objectives around public sector reform, infrastructure delivery, housing, education and skills, uh, getting people into good, well-paid, secure jobs. The how you do it has got to be tailored to the local uh, circumstance. Capacity then becomes an issue because if the how it's done is going to be through those, uh, for local government, through mayors, 
you know, the number of councils now that are issuing Section 114 notices saying we just can't make the numbers add up. Demand is going through the roof in adult social care, children's services, homelessness, the cost of borrowing has gone up, uh, and of course baseline costs like payroll has gone through the roof as well. Uh, in the end, more and more councils are deciding that the money is just uh, not there to service that demand. Uh, and it's no uh, accident that more councils have declared bankruptcy in the last two years than the previous 30 years combined. Uh, eventually, the money runs out after 14 years of austerity, and that does provide a challenge. Now, the envelope is the envelope. The question is, how do you get more bang for the buck? And I do think there is something in looking at every pound that we spend in an area, and we used to call it total place. It's had a number of iterations in the past. Uh, and really requiring every part of government to marshal around a single plan for a place, with the local authority as the democrat democratically elected body in that area, holding the ring and driving that transformational uh, public service change. Because if you think about the way that we assess capital spending, we're very clear about the outcomes that we want for capital. Uh, we know what it looks like at the end of it, and we know that the project is completed. I think we are less confident and less clear about revenue spend, where money is spent on a daily basis without a clear outcome, uh, often in competition with each other uh, regard, uh, regarding different levels of uh, public services delivering it. And I do think that is an area where there is a lot uh, a fertile uh, ground. Uh, I would also say culture uh, is an area that is often kind of skirted over, really. You can have devolution of uh, power, you can have devolution of resources, but in the end, culture matters. Uh, and where you see areas that are thriving, with local authorities that are ambitious for their place, with mayors that are driving the agenda as well, who have good relationships with national government, in the end, that's about culture. Where we see um, you know, the fragmented local relationships or fragmented relationships between national and local, that in the end is about how it works into personal relationships. And I think it is really important that we start with a starting principle that is a relationship of equals, that national government can only achieve what it wants to achieve with local government and our mayors and vice versa. Uh, the two are not in competition. They have to work hand in hand as partners uh, in power. I would also say, you know, the, the kind of imbalance has shifted away from the local to the national. If you look at the last 14 years, local government has lost 900,000 of its workforce. Central government has increased by 900,000. We've seen a direct transfer of workforce from the local to the national. Even Whitehall, the civil service, has grown in that period. And so there is a question, I think, for anybody in government around uh, if that is a priority, how do we marshal the available resource uh, to meet that demand. So. Great, thanks very much, Jim. Really interesting set of reflections there. And yeah, reminder of total place budgets and, and things like that, a, a blast, blast from the past. Um, Oliver, I'll come to you next. You've now been mayor for around 18 months, just over, I think. What have you managed to achieve so far with the powers that you currently have? And what do you think are the key policy <laughs> levers that you need and, and other mayors need to really transform <coughs> your regional economy? I've managed to look a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> in, that, in, that, in that time. Um, well, first, it's probably worth saying, um, in the, I think, fortunate position of being able to agree with both what Seb says and what Jim says. I think what that speaks to is the sort of growing unanimity across politics about the need for greater devolution, about the need for regional leaders to take forward their place, about the need for um, policy solutions to come bottom up rather than come top down. And if we look at kind of OECD countries, we are outliers in um, devolution. We do not devolve enough. We do have not devolved fast enough. We have not gone, in my view, far enough. 
That said, I think in South Yorkshire we can lay claim to, make, uh, to making significant progress with the powers and money and um, control that is available. And you know, I have come into this role um, on the back of what was a fairly uh, nascent political settlement. Devolution was sort of hard fought, hard won in South Yorkshire. Um, it was not um, universally supported by all of the different political stakeholders. And so actually, in first and foremost, what we're trying to do is create a political identity a political identity for South Yorkshire, one that is indeed built on South Yorkshire County Council, 1974, a lot of you will remember, um, kind of local government reorganisation, but we had a South Yorkshire County Council and we're now sort of almost trying to resurrect the idea that the place that we call home is a place called South Yorkshire, not just a place called uh, Barnsley, Rotherham, Doncaster or Sheffield. I was told about a story from um, former MEP, a woman called Linda McAvan, some of you may know. Linda told me she used to work for the leader of Barnsley Council. And um, uh, he was a guy called Headley Salt, former miner, big, big bloke, you know, when I was a kid. And um, he went to an event with some officers uh, in, a, in a working men's club in Barnsley, and the council had put up a banner. And the banner said, the town of Barnsley. And Headley went mad at the officers, and he was having a pop at them and saying that the banner wasn't right, and they needed to take it down. And Linda said, why, what's wrong with it? And he said, it's not the town of Barnsley, it's the towns of Barnsley because Barnsley was a series of pit villages that grew up into a place called Barnsley. And Headley's challenge, and indeed Steve Houghton's challenge, the leader of Barnsley, who has been the leader for 27 years, has done you know, wondrous things with Barnsley, is to create Barnsley, first and foremost. And now what we're asking them to do is to lean into the idea of South Yorkshire as an identity, so that when we spend money in Doncaster, that that is good for Barnsley. When we spend money in Barnsley, that is good for Sheffield. And so first and foremost, and that speaks to Jim's point about culture, my job is, I think, to create that identity and show the reason why uh, we need a South Yorkshire footprint is an important one and indeed a valid one. So I think that's probably the first thing that's been on my to-do list. Uh, you know, I could point to any number of policy successes and I think we have had um, an outsized number of policy successes in South Yorkshire. We were the world's first advanced manufacturing innovation district. We are now the UK's first investment zone. was proud to launch that with Jeremy Hunt. Um, back in September last year. Alongside that, we got a second stage of investment from Boeing. Boeing are, um, Boeing's only manufacturing facility in Europe is in South Yorkshire. And that is based around the uh, innovation district that we built up, the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre and the Associated Assets. I was there yesterday with Darren Jones. It is a magnet for politicians <laughs> who want to show that they are focused on growth because that's absolutely what it is. It's a growth engine. It's built on what was the site of the Battle of Orgreave, the old Orgreave pit. And it's now got 4,000, bless you, 4,000 homes. Um, the world's most advanced manufacturing capabilities are based on that site, doing everything from small modular nuclear right through to building um, the plane wings of the future. And we've supported that growth um, keenly because that's the engine for growth for South Yorkshire alongside some assets like uh, the Olympic Legacy Park uh, down in a place called At Attercliffe. So, look, I've seen my job absolutely, and speaks to Seb's points, I've seen my job as growth. My job is growth. My job is to bring growth to South Yorkshire, and South Yorkshire's growth has been anemic. Um, and so focusing on that by making sure that we are doing all the right things, putting the building blocks in place, not just around the very kind of front and centre ideas around advanced manufacturing and uh, economic growth in that sense, but all the things that support economic growth, not least public transport, bringing the tram network back under public control, which is a big decision that happens in March of this year, working to bring the buses back under public control, indeed, if that's what the franchising assessment process says. I have to legally say that to you. Um, so that's the process we're going through right now. 
Um, focusing on health, I'm the only mayor in the country to have taken on responsibility for the integrated care partnership in South Yorkshire, and that's because of my focus on health inequalities in South Yorkshire, which is not just a moral uh, challenge and problem, but an economic challenge and problem. We have a 20-year healthy life expectancy gap in South Yorkshire, so in some parts of South Yorkshire, people are getting too sick to work in their mid-50s, which obviously holds our economy back, and that will be, I would imagine, no different in places like Oldham yeah. and other parts in the north. So it's not just about saying, right, we want jobs, and we're gonna work with Boeing in order to get jobs, and I do all of that, I've been out to St. Louis, DC, various other places besides, I was with a contingent from South Korea last night. It's about the supporting structures which allow that growth to happen longer term. I would argue that safety and security, policing is gonna be part of that. Hopefully if South Yorkshire gets those police and crime commissioners and I take on that role from May, that all of those constituent parts have to go to creating this major hole, which is growth. And I think we've got a good story to tell in South Yorkshire. Great, thanks very much, Oliver. So if your private sector investment will be a key driver of, of regional growth um, in England, as, as indeed it already is. So how can devolution within England help to make investment in regions outside London, the southeast, more attractive? And what does that mean about how devolution should be pursued from your perspective? So it's fascinating. It's also the benefit of going last, of course, <laughs> madly taking notes. But I think, um, you know, I think from my perspective, from Aviva's perspective, the real benefit here is around this local understanding that we've talked about. We've talked about partnerships and being better integrated into local economies. And I think that sort of accountability and empowerment point is really important. So when you think about investing in places, what you really need, and as my role as regeneration, is you need raw material and you need local places that want growth and want development. And that, and that sort of comes right actually from skills. So, you know, what's your infrastructure looking like? How does your place work at the moment? I think the kind of innovation hubs that you talked about are absolutely fascinating and give real opportunities for places like Aviva to come in on that institutional investment to have long-term partnerships. I think for me, some real benefits have been, and I mentioned beforehand, I spent nine years at Homes England prior to joining Aviva about 15 months ago. Sometimes that central government fiscal timetable can make local growth quite difficult. Mm -hmm. And as an investor coming in, when you're looking at, well, you might have this funding next, this year, but what have you got next year? It makes it incredible, incredibly difficult to build those relationships, to identify opportunities and take them forward. Some of the schemes that we are looking at are, could be you know, three, five, 15, 20-year terms. And because Aviva has this benefit of both having its own balance sheet investment in the very earliest days, so able to really sit alongside public sector, particularly recognising the wider fiscal challenges I think that we have at the moment, through to our investment managed annuity funds, we could be there for 50 years actually. So actually having partnerships that are, that are really embedded and looking more um, holistically and understanding their lo local perspectives is really important. You know, regional priorities, Thinking about how what, what your place is and what it needs and how it might work, I think is really important. It feels to me that it can bring the best of each part of, you know, central government is still key, important, we think, uh, and that regional perspective and then local piece. But I think we've talked a bit about there's no one silver bullet. Having potentially personalities sometimes can be a bit of a distraction possibly it can be a real strength can potentially be a bit of a distraction but also really recognizing the importance of local government and saying making sure that there is appropriate funding again I was saying earlier um, the, in, a, in my previous role we were doing a lot of work with local government their role there in terms of grant and other support and 
um, understanding kind of the nuts and bolts is incredibly important and making sure that they've got the capacity and the funding to have the right staff and to make sure that they've got the right people who aren't overly stretched or stressed to be able to deliver from grassroots up is a really important part. So I think it's very much about, and it's encouraging, I think it's been a message from everyone that the relationship is really important and that everyone has a part to play. And for me, the really successful piece is when people are coming to the table for a joined up approach to having growth in place, um, rather than kind of the, the one part has to lose because another part is winning. So, um, so really ripe opportunities. And I think, you know, from our perspective, we're really keen to step in and work alongside and play the part that we might have in terms of that wider growth piece. I think you want to come in on that, but I'd also be keen to hear your, your thoughts from the, on Seb's discussion about the M10 and the potential for more collaboration between mayors as well. Uh, sure, let me just pick up the point about partnerships. So I think that's absolutely right. So we're very proud now to be working with Aviva on a partnership in South Yorkshire about how we can leverage the investment in order to grow our economy. There is a challenge in South Yorkshire around access to finance. Yeah. Um, for our startups and scale-ups, but also for our bigger businesses. We've done some work on that through organisations like Northern Gritstone that some of you may be aware of who are brilliant and we are now investing in, um, but also with partners like Aviva. And we're really proud of that because actually what that shows, I think, is that appetite and willingness um, to actually do the difficult things to grow the economy. Um, and, you know, that's absolutely right. That is, like I say, my job. It's not just through Aviva, Northern Gritstone, like I say, the investment zone, and that means working with government. And I'm very keen to do that and we will call the government out when they're not investing in South Yorkshire but we will absolutely celebrate it when the government do invest in South Yorkshire working with partners like Boeing um, but also South Yorkshire Pensions Authority so um, agreed a £500 million investment from South Yorkshire Pensions Authority um, Homes England and an MOU so, so I think the point I'm trying to make is it answers that Kissinger question of when you want to grow the economy when you want to invest in a place who do you call who do you speak to and mayors answer that question in a way that local authority leaders just can't and government <coughs> can't answer that question on behalf of South Yorkshire, but a mayor can. Mm. And so what we see now, I think, with a, a mayor, hopefully that is visible and engaged with the private sector and with the government and other parts of the state, that absolutely what we're able to do is bring in that investment and then show that, <laughs> show that momentum. On Seb's point around the M10, um, the group rather than the motorway. <laughs> we've, we've, had, we've literally had that conversation about what should have it be called. We have, <laughs> we have had that conversation. Um, uh, and, and the analogy that we <coughs> spoke about was actually the US Convention of Mayors because the US Convention of Mayors is a deeply powerful and important uh, institution in American politics. Presidents will you know, make their way to the US Convention of Mayors in order to be able to kind of make the case for their policy environment. And that is you know, clearly a different political... Uh, set of structures, but I do think there is something in there for um, UK mayors, and we do have to get those structures right to be able to speak with one voice. Where we've been able to do that, I think we've been effective. When you look at, for instance, the work we did together on ticket office closures, we were very effective, I think, as speaking with one voice about that issue and getting um, the government and the private operators to, to row back. Um, but what we've got to do is kind of figure out a way to make that not just single issues, but about the broader set of powers, about how we work together collectively, how we create structures that government can dock into and then, like I say, speak with one voice. One of my challenges is that there are different devolution offers available to different parts of the country now. So you look at Manchester and 
what Andy is able to access around things like single pot settlement around business rate retention. If South Yorkshire is not able to access those powers, then it feels to me like we're creating an unlevel playing field when we're trying to level up. And what I would like to see is us speaking with one voice through an organisation which might not be called the M10, and not least because we're getting more members and we're going to have to start calling it different motorway names. So we've got to work out a name that sticks um, and then use that platform and structure in order to be able to speak with one voice about what we want, what we need and what we're good at. And I think that's entirely possible. Can I quickly come back on that? That uh, on that, on what you talk about the American example, there's a great book called If Mayors Ruled the World by Benjamin Barber, who's a US political scientist. And that, I read that when it first came out about 10 years ago, and that's what prompted my interest in mayors. And when he looks at that kind of collective organisation you talk about, Oliver, I think... It, 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 it's about what are the aspirations and aims because they're, they're trying to get to. Because obviously America has many more mayors, many more cities with more disparate um, um, policy dilemmas than we have in this country. In some ways, our mayors are more unified. One of the things he highlights, which I think we have got here, is what we've seen through the first couple of generations of mayors is they're less ideological than other politicians. And I think it's partly because it's a delivery role in many sense. You are, you know, you know a lot of Labour's mayors have been the main Labour Party, main people with executive power over the past decade, you know, be Sadiq Khan or Anibin, who are actually having to do things, collaborating with a Conservative national government, which means they have become, I think, more pragmatic instinctively. And I think if you're trying to create an ethos around a nationwide mayor organisation, that's the bit you've got to try and grasp about how you can find ways of doing things together. So if you can find all the mayors agree on the thing, you can speak on one voice and then speak to the government with the one voice. And that's the kind of model we've got to try I, and I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I love the title of the book if nothing else but like I think that's a very good book I think I think that's I think that's absolutely right I think what it speaks to is the the, the lack of maturity within our mayoral system to a certain extent yeah. so if you look in the states you've got organizations I'm part of the Bloomberg Harvard Bloomberg City Leadership Initiative paid for sponsored by um, by Mike Bloomberg who kind of pays for us to get together go to Harvard do all these sorts of different wonderful things and that was led and by him because of his experience of being a mayor in New York City and the lack of support that was there for mayors at the time. So he stepped into that void using his own funds in a way that kind of in the UK philanthropy doesn't really, philanthropy doesn't really kind of do that. So if we can create those supporting structures in a way, you know, you've got the LGA at the moment mm -hmm. that support local government and various other structures besides not least Solace and other things. And um, you don't have those supporting structures other than M10 for mayors at the moment. I think what we need is a more mature system where mayors get that sort of support, where there's a kind of supporting infrastructure around us, but we've got to kind of lead the way. Yeah. I'm keen to go to questions from the audience in, in just a moment, but actually, question I wanted to follow up on was on capacity which has come up from from a few people and actually the most popular question online is from from Lizzie who's a former local government officer and says are the institutions needed for devolution in a strong enough position to take on the roles needed with four in ten councils now at risk of going bankrupt do we need fewer stronger local government institutions and Jim I'm interested in you know, Labour has identified capacity as something that needs to be addressed what, what are the concrete ideas there and how would you go about sort of addressing this this issue yeah, I mean, I'm not sure the, the ending of that question is the answer to the question. I don't think fewer local authorities remove the £4 billion funding gap or the pressures on social care, children's services, homelessness. I don't think it takes away the cost of borrowing. I don't think it takes away the cost of the national minimum wage increases. All those inherent demand costs will still be in the system, even if you had fewer local authorities. I do think the question of reorganisation in some areas is a live question. Uh, and in some areas, it might be a necessary path to achieving devolution and a mayoral model that gives every leader in that area 
uh, an equal footing uh, to feel confident to be part of that. I mean, it's no uh, surprise in, in Lancashire, you know, that a number of councils are coming out to say they don't support the devolution deal that was agreed uh, on Lancashire Day. Um, because they haven't got a seat around the table and you can't take a place forward if significant players who run local authorities are even around the table marshalling their own resources and their political capital being invested in um, either. So, um, but the, the capacity issue, I think, is a, uh, is a very serious issue that we need to, to address. I would say, though, in terms of culture and kind of the working together, um, the non-partisan, I suppose, are kind of very, just very pragmatic. We'll, we'll do whatever is needed to advance the cause of our place. We'll work with whoever we need to, mm. if it's right for our community. In my experience, has been the vast majority uh, of local government culture, regardless of political party, in all the time that I've been in local government for 20 uh, odd years. But bear in mind, the pragmatism that correctly Andy Burnham has brought in Greater Manchester was born out of a pragmatism of 10 local authority mm. leaders. I, I was one of them. Uh, with only one Conservative leader who signed the first devolution deal that created the mayor, mm -hmm. uh, with George Osborne at the time, because we recognised to achieve more for our place, we had to work together across party lines uh, to get investment in our communities and get more power and resources um, down. But in terms of resource, I do think we make a mistake if all we do is to look at local government spending. We have to look at every single public sector pound that's spent in a geographer and question whether it's being used for the best outcome for the, uh, for the best service being offered uh, to local people. Uh, how we hold the ring on that, how we marshal that, how we get people around a single plan uh, is a question to be answered, I accept. Um, but I think that's got to be uh, the answer to that. Call it total place, call it you know, place-based budgeting, call it what you want. But if we can achieve that with multi-year settlements that gives that confidence and security uh, in the past, that will definitely give sectoral confidence for the private sector as much as the public sector. Great, thank you. I'm keen to come to questions in the audience now, so please raise your hands and then we'll um, get the mic. Actually, we've got a lot of questions down the front, so we go to the lady here, the gentleman in the front row, and then the gentleman just behind. Thanks very much. I'm Lauren McEvitt from the Welsh Government's Commission on the Future of the Constitution. So I'm here from the Elder Statesman Devolution Settlement, um, the, uh, the, the, the path well trodden uh, in your, uh, in your uh, 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 previous lives. I'm sure you've come across them. Um, I wanted to ask about um, the finance arrangements. Um, we are obviously, our commission is reporting in two days, so I'm not going to, you know, pre-announce anything here because I'd just be mean. Um, but uh, one of the things that I have learned and, and come to accept over the course of the last two years is that Barnet has a shelf life. Um, the Barnet formula is no longer fit for purpose. It has almost never been fit for purpose for Wales. Um, it has obviously benefited Scotland enormously over the course of the years. But one of the things that is principally problematic with it is how the Treasury behaves with Barnet, how it relates to something where it's, okay, we do this and then it's done. And then it doesn't ever behave with the other departments in London in a way that would allow for open conversation and policy generation across a border. One of the big in, uh, sort of instances of this is transport, where rail is obviously devolved, but rail infrastructure remains reserved. You look at a Barnet consequential, a Barnet formulation going down to Wales in relation to how the formula functions, and no similar function working within the Treasury. So the rail infrastructure budget is spending about 2% in Wales, when Barnet would be 5.75%, and the actual physical geography of Wales is 8%. So it's massively underfunding the rail infrastructure budget somewhere because the Treasury has Sorry, sort of can gone... Can we get to the Absolutely, question. as I sort of put in a, parked it in a pod. How do we do financial arrangements across the United Kingdom, not just in England, 
in a way that benefits economic growth, learning from the experiences of DAs where economic growth has been lacking, having, ha having had it devolved for 25 years, um, because the financial arrangements through Barnet, which would provide a roadmap for how you do this, are not working. Um, and I think we have to look at the UK as a whole in this rather than just England, otherwise we will fail again. Great, thank you very much. Tom Brake from Unlock Democracy. Um, my question is that the discussion about devolution has been about devolving down to mayors and to some extent to local authorities. What role do the panelists see for neighbourhoods and communities to contribute to economic growth? So the, the bottom up that Oliver was talking about. Perfect, thank you. And then the gentleman just behind. I'll have another round of questions. Uh, Jonathan Wren, actor. Most people in it, I think, in society have no idea the role of a mayor. I mean, how, how can we change that? I mean, most people assume you open up summer fates and, and dress rather nicely. It's fine. So, I mean, how, uh, personally, I have no real idea what the mayor is supposed to do. And once you have a mayor, is it elected? Do you elect mayors? I don't know how they get there. Are they qualified, really, to take on such a major role? I'm, I'm not sure. There has to be some sort of uh, background to support that, surely. Is a cabinet qualified? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we won't talk about Labour. We won't talk about the Labour government, don't worry. Great. Thank you very much. Thank so you. We've got three, three questions. One about how financial arrangement should, should work, which I think should see as an invitation to panellists if you want to get into the, the fiscal devolution questions that, that Seb raised earlier. Question about neighbourhoods' role, the more local role in, in driving growth. And then, and then about... Um, the, the role of mayors and who they are. I suppose there's something there about the, the visibility that um, Seb talked about, the confusion about who does what and how we can have sort of effective accountability um, given that. Perhaps um, we'll start at this end and go through, take whichever questions you'd like. Yeah, I'm, I'll rush through them all. I think, Lauren, to your question about lessons of Barlet, look, ultimately the lesson has to be about not having static funding formulas, I think is the ultimate principle behind this. Because as you said, there is a very classic treasury mindset of do something, done, fine, move on to the next thing. Whereas the mayoral settlements have not been that. And we've seen over the last decade or so, they have changed in significant ways. Powers have come, some of the areas have changed, the powers have, and the, the, the elected elements have come and gone as well. And I think that should be reflecting the funding as well, as the, the, the priorities do shift. I'm not saying I have the answer on that one directly, but my general view on that as well is that if you are able to devolve more of the, the money, coming back to my point about 1p in the pound for a basic rate of income tax, that allows them locally to have more of a say on that. And I think that has to be the principle that you're trying to get stuff as close to people as possible. That's the whole reason we're here talking about this. And where that comes with complication also goes against everything the Treasury wants to do in terms of when it does funding. But as you said, there is a good basis to try and not repeat it before. Uh, Tom, to your question about neighbourhoods, um, again, this is a fantastic opportunity to promote a, another paper on what did called Double Devolution. And we are a big fan of everything, not just the mess, but also everything right down to parish councils as well. And I think that it's very important that when you're taking powers to, you know, because one thing we've talked quite a lot, but here's the identity of areas. And Oliver talked about South Yorkshire and if I go back to when I did the book research, you know, Annie Burnham represents Greater Manchester. I spent about six weeks in that area and I asked anyone, where do you come from? And not a single person said Greater Manchester. Then they all, you know, they, they, they all had, sometimes they said Manchester, sometimes they said Lancashire, wherever it may be. And I think you've got to be very careful in creating these new structures that you don't forget those 
very, very local levels that make sense to people on the neighbourhoods and they live there. So I think you should be putting power down to uh, the combined authorities, which I think is the right model. Then making sure it's going down much further to most localised when it does make sense as well. And this comes back to my point about antisocial behaviour. That's a prime one where combined authorities need to work with structures lower than that. Um, what is a man? What mayors do? I mean, in a way, it's not a straightforward answer, but that's how it should be. <clears throat> because they're a relative, what we're talking about here is a relatively new thing we're putting on to our political system in the UK. And if you look at the, uh, the mayors we've got at the moment, they're all very different. You've got Andy Burnham, who's a former cabinet minister. Um, I think that probably makes him qualify to be mayor. You've got Andy Street, who is former chief executive of John Lewis. So, you know, there's two very different people from different examples. Ultimately, it's for the public to decide, is this person a credible candidate to lead my area? And what are they talking about? And some mayors um, got elected on a very pragmatic Thing, you know, so Ben Houchin in Tees Valley got elected to um, buy an airport and reopen it. Um, I think then, and obviously it worked, and the airport is there. And whereas others um, tackle it in very different ways, they talk about kind of Oliver's thing, which is much more about an identity for a region, about bringing people together. So I don't think there is a single answer to that, but ultimately it is for the combined authorities led by mayors to explain to people what they do and how they knit into that infrastructure. That's not a question we in Westminster should be answering because that's the whole point. Great. Feel free to take just one or two of the questions. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, that's, that's great. Well, I think in a way the kind of question about the Barnet formula is the easiest one because it's not my uh, job to answer that question. <laughs> um, uh, other than to say, of course, you know, the Labour Party did uh, ask Gordon Brown to review the whole of the UK and the Constitution and uh, that future settlement, and that is a very kind of meaningful piece of work that Keir is kind of personally very uh, committed to. I do think, as an observation, uh, the current government have a challenge, which is that they, for quite a long period, held out that uh, Wales wouldn't get Barnet consequentials for HS2 because it was a national project that Wales ultimately would benefit from as the country was raised. Well, now it's no longer a national project. It's a series of very localised projects. It, I think it does raise a legitimate question about whether Barnet consequentials should then uh, follow. Well, that's an argument for others to make. Um, I think, Tom, <laughs> your point around um, localism, I think, is really important. And probably, you know, part of the problem is that many people don't understand the difference between decentralisation, devolution and localism. Mm -hmm. uh, they stand by themselves and, they, of course, have a, an interrelationship. But the localism bit, for me, is really important. If we think about Brexit uh, and the message underlying that, for me, in a town like Oldham was, people were sick and tired of having things done to them and not having any control or influence over the places where they live and where they care about. They were seeing the area get worse and not better. They were seeing the decline of the high street and the roller shutters being pulled down. They were seeing antisocial behaviour uh, take control of the streets and people didn't feel safe going out. They saw the good jobs of the past being something of the past and not the future. Uh, and, and all that insecurity and anger that built up, I think, felt very profoundly through the Brexit yeah. uh, uh, discussions, you know, which is why Labour is committed to the uh, Take Back Control Act, <coughs> about answering that question about how do you give people power in the places where they live. Uh, and for me, a very important part of any devolved settlement has got to include uh, local contribution, because in the end, we aren't going to achieve the change we want to achieve without local people being part of that and tapping into the human capital uh, as much as uh, other capital. And then, Jonathan, I think your, your question about kind of mayors, in a sense, like, they come into their own when they come into their own, because it isn't so prescribed that mayors are told to stay in their box. Uh, and people have different views about this, but I think, in a way, that what make, that's what makes them stand out. You know, they're not council leaders. They don't run councils. We have council leaders for that. They are leaders of place. And so they have to assume a responsibility that's bigger than the legal powers that have been given to them. 
that when something impacts on their place, they've got to be the person that stands up and says, I'm going to talk about this. And I would say, you know, uh, as a local MP negotiating during COVID around the failure of the national track and trace system, the failure of self-isolation and the inability of people to afford to self-isolate because they had insecure, uh, poorly paid employment and they couldn't afford to do that. <coughs> we were arguing on calls uh, with Matt Hancock at the time of the health secretary uh, into the air, making no progress whatsoever. I would say, if not for Andy Burnham and others making the call in St. Peter's Square um, because of how badly working people in Greater Manchester were being treated during COVID, I don't think we would have got the settlement for local track mm. and trace systems being devolved. I don't think we would have got the local uh, employment support being devolved either. And so, you know, that was a local leader who said, this matters to my place, I'm going to speak up on it. That wasn't the prescribed powers, and I think that's what, in a way, where the mayors do come into their own. Great, thanks very much. Sophie? Yeah, I think just to pick up again on that sort of the local parish, this sort of local level, it is really important to have that stakeholder voice. And I think, as has been touched on already, change as a human concept, actually, change can be quite intimidating. And if you feel like it's being done to you, then it's never going to work. And actually bringing people alongside. We've got projects that we're working on at the moment, big regen projects, and actually the stakeholder management, or management's the wrong word, stakeholder engagement piece is really important and bringing people along. But you do need, I think, there is a real benefit in that regional oversight to be able to have a kind of a slightly eagle eye view and be able to see more broadly than the, than the true delivery on the ground. So I think there is a real benefit actually of having that, but being able to feed up and recognising who your people are is really important. Great, thanks. Oliver. Um, thank you. So on Lauren's point, uh, just very briefly, because Barnet Formula is not my territory, but I just, I, I, I do think that we do need a needs-based approach to how we fund different parts of this country. And I've certainly been uh, critical of the government's approach around trying to level up through competition, competitive bids for um, various different pots of money. The most egregious example in South Yorkshire is that we bid for £434 million for bus service improvement plan funding and got zero. And now we see other parts of the country being able to do all sorts of different things on their buses that we just can't hope to do and our buses are in crisis. And yet the funding formula, the funding model that was kind of allowed to exist around buses just didn't help us at all. So, you know, a needs-based approach is the, is the right way forward. And I do think the Labour Party's missions-based approach to some of these challenges is the right one because actually it marries up a load of different parts of the state behind a mission rather than just saying, you've all got a responsibility to deliver against X. I think that kind of joining up is part of that solution. On Tom's question around um, communities, I think, I, I think it's a false dichotomy to say devolution or local power. I, I think absolutely what mayors are able to do at their best is amplify voices of local communities, empower local communities. It's why in South Yorkshire we have now concluded the biggest regional citizens assembly in, in the country, particularly on uh, climate in this instance, 100 people, um, eight weeks of a citizens assembly in order to empower our communities. And that was done because we have a mayor. I have, um, and it points to the last question as well, I, I have a series of public meetings across the region. I've probably done more public meetings as a mayor than anybody else because it is fundamentally important to me that I'm engaging with my communities and listening to my communities and then reflecting back in the decisions that we make, the, the voices of those communities. And then, so on Jonathan's question about how do we raise the profile of mayors, I was told by doing Institute for Government events, that was the main way of, of doing that. <laughs> we'll see if that is the case on the Guardian front page tomorrow. But, um, <laughs> but I think more, more seriously, um, it is about um, two things. One, mayors doing bigger things. So the bigger things we do and getting 
you know, attention for those big things is going to lead inevitably, I think, to more attention for, for mayors. I do think the system is a bit slow on picking up on some of that. I've taken in the last few weeks decisions over hundreds of millions of pounds of, of spending. And yet um, the attention um, on that is minimal because actually the press media are more interested in a Westminster soap opera than they are mm. in the actual decisions being made every single day by mayors like me. And so actually I think the system has to catch up to a certain did, extent. Did, 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 do you think though as a slight counter to that, except as a general principle that's of the national press that's correct, mm -hmm. but do you not think with devolution the regional press has really grown and so come this, to its own? I think about the Manchester Evening well, News, the Yorkshire Post, I mean, I mean they're kind of so I was, I was going to come on to this point, which is to say that I think one of the challenges is to generate um, the appropriate level of scrutiny from your local mm. and regional media. And, and yes, the Yorkshire Post have done a brilliant job alongside the Manchester Evening News. I think the hollowing out of uh, local media, you know, you look at some of the kind of decisions that have been taken around uh, regional local press um, recently, um, means that just at a time when mayor's regional devolution is coming into its own, uh, and we're getting more and more power, more spending decisions, local media is being hollowed out in a way that it can't hold us to account in the way that it could and absolutely should. And you know, I'm happy, keen indeed, to lean into that scrutiny because I think that's the way that mayors become bigger, mm. is through greater scrutiny and absolutely accepting the need for that scrutiny. Uh, but that does come with a requirement, I think, for local media, not least the BBC, and we've seen local BBC cuts, significant local BBC cuts recently um, and without that I think it's harder for mayors to get their uh, message out and then accept and, and acknowledge that scrutiny. Great okay we are nearly out of time and we have lots of questions online and I'm just going to get two very brief questions in the room and one online so we go to the, the gentleman here and the gentleman in the middle there who had his hand up first. Sorry. <clears throat> Thank you. I'm Roger Goff. I'm the leader of Kent County Council. Uh, one area which has been a bit um, of an absent guest in uh, much of the devolution process has been the housing and planning at the level of, say, strategic planning. And I think even where the M10 members have had some powers in that regard, many of them have not really uh, taken it forward that much. In the new Labour years, we saw a regional approach to those things. Uh, then in the last 14 years, a much more fragmented approach. Just interested as to how that might fit into uh, further devolution and how that might develop. Great, thank you. And then gentlemen here. Thank you, my name is John Dobson. Um, I live in Plymouth and I live in Putney. My council tax in Plymouth is twice what I pay in Putney. My services I receive in Plymouth are half or less than what I receive in Putney. So do we not need to think outside the box? I know this is not a new idea, but should we, if we were to abolish the, that well-known Westminster care home called the House of Lords, um, if we were to make that a regional assembly, like they have in Russia, where I used to live, 89 regions there, they each elect two into the Federation Council, same Senate America, and so on and so forth. Do we not need a national level of regional representation and we've already got it if we get rid of those people who are currently occupying those seats. Great, thank you. And one, one question online, I'm sorry to those online host questions I didn't get to, but the most popular one is the recent research suggests that in Greater Manchester, the expansion of the Metrolink is linked to growing GVA. Um, so how big of a role does transport devolution have to play? So if that, that's three final questions, housing and planning, um, questions about House of Lords and regional representation touching actually on some of the Brown Commission recommendations in that space, um, and then transport devolution. If each of you could just take one of those questions and speak for about 
40 seconds, that'll be great. I'm going to do the House of Lords one, if that's right, which is that I half-fully agree with you, which is that um, when, at the, at, when the end of, of I've done my tour around the Red War, I said that one thing we should do is replace the House of Lords not with a regional assembly. New Labour tried the regional agenda, as I think the gentleman referred to over here. And I think regions didn't work as a concept, either economically or culturally. And I interviewed David Miliband about that for the book, and he agreed with me on that base, whereas the male conurbation does work. My solution would be is to have a House of Lords which includes the mayors in it. And uh, we have got a model through the mayors. They've got their own democratic mandates. They can participate virtually as well as presence and act as a check and balance on MPs without getting into the way of having two separate elected bodies. So my kind of vision for what the House of Lords should look like is basically a 200-seat sort of chamber, half of which would be mayors and representatives from the DAs, and the other half would be kind of independent experts that would be a kind of usual mix of people from parties and professions and what have you because I do think having two elected chambers would create a huge amount of dysfunction in Westminster would challenge the supremacy of the commons and having lived in America for a period and worked there I can very much tell you we don't want to import that kind of sort of friction Fiction, no, not the fiction free, very high levels of fiction there, relationship there. So I do agree with you on the House of Lords that it needs something radical like that, but not elected. Great. Jim? Uh, just on housing and planning, that's a significant area of um, focus for, for Labour. Housing, um, planning, transportation, net zero, adult education and skills is all, in a way, kind of one and the same, isn't it? It's about how do you build a plan for the place that raises uh, together. And I think that kind of where areas have done it well is where housing planning, transport are interlinked and going into the future. Yeah. Energy uh, and infrastructure will have, to, in, the, in the broader sense, will have to be part of that. There's no point in building uh, a new estate if you can't get grid connections uh, for, for renewables, etc. cetera. So uh, that, that's an area we're going to work from. But I think also about the government approach, about how do you unlock what are currently quite fragmented grant schemes into a single pot so local authorities know exactly how much they've got over a number of years that they can plan ahead mm -hmm. to deliver the plan that they've come together to produce. But I do think, going back to Tom's earlier point, the co-production with local people, when you do that, is really important because no uh, one of the existing or future mayors wants to have protests in their areas because local people haven't been brought together to co-produce that plan and in the end see it as something that's bad for the area not good for the area. Local people have got to know that the plan for the place has them front and centre to it. Great. Sophie, perhaps housing and planning or transport? Yeah, absolutely. As a real estate professional, I don't think there's anyone out there that wouldn't say that the planning system is not working at the moment. Um, that, uh, you know, we are seeing investment partners stepping away from large-scale development because it's just too expensive, it takes too long, and there's not enough certainty. And anything that can be done to improve that process, to give greater certainty of the steps, to have better capacity. But again, it comes back to that point that was touched on earlier about having the capacity, the right skill sets, and this is actually something that Aviva's doing some work on at the moment about how does, how does sort of private sector help provide and support in terms of whether that's academies or, or bringing wells in. And, and some of the loss that we've seen from public sector into private sector because of potentially some of the challenges around um, funding and the like is a big issue. And housing, um, you know, we don't have enough truly affordable, small a affordable housing and anything that we can do to improve that will ultimately then lead to better environments. Because if you've got a safe place to live, that you know, you don't necessarily need to own it, I don't think personally, but you need to know that it's yours for as long as you can, that you want to use it and it works and it's got access to good employment, good schools and good infrastructure, then that feels to me the baseline of a good 
growth plan. Great. And final word, Oliver, perhaps touching on transport. <laughs> um, well, annoyingly, I find a kind of point of difference with Seb just finally right at the end, which is about kind of being mayors being in the House of Lords. Like Lord Houchin is welcome to the House of Lords, quite honestly. <laughs> I've got enough on without trying to legislate nationally as well as doing the job that I already have. Um, on transport, absolutely. I think, you know, what we don't always kind of reckon with in this country is the central role of transport in economic growth. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to economic growth strategies, they have to contend with the challenge that is local transport and chiefly buses. And buses are not a sexy topic, but they are absolutely fundamental to any plan for any mayor when it comes to economic growth. South Yorkshire's productivity in the early 2000s was 99% of Greater Manchester's. It's now 90% of Greater Manchester's. And I put a large part of that down to the, the destruction of our public transport network through privatisation. It's why we're working so hard to bring mm. public transport back under public control, why we're bringing the tram network back under public control because of the fundamental nature of public transport. So we need a, a, an approach to public transport that I think puts mayors front and centre, but absolutely sees transport and local transport systems as a fundamental part of how we grow the economy. Great, thank you very much. I'm afraid we're out of time. We could definitely have kept going for much longer. If you still want to think a bit more about this, you can read the IFG report on this topic uh, that was the basis of, of today's discussion. And do also keep a lookout for further work on devolution and how the next government should approach it that the IFG are planning to put out over the coming months. Um, thanks again to Aviva for making uh, today's conversation possible. Um, and thank you to all of my panellists. And just to say before you um, applaud them, as I'm sure you will, that the next event that we've got here at the IFG is next Tuesday, which is our annual conference. So a series of um, really interesting um, different panels going on there, including some touching on the topic of, of devolution. So do take a look at that and, and do sign up to that as well. So please thank all of my panellists. <laughs>